Today is Thursday, April 21st, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedwafo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, a U.S. top diplomat warns of atrocities by Russian forces as the battle for Ukraine's Mariupol intensifies. The receding Russian tide from Bucha revealed what was left in its wake, destruction, atrocities. We can only anticipate that one, this tide also at some point recedes from Mariupol, we're going to see far worse. The International Monetary Fund slashes global economic growth forecast to 3.6%. Russia's war in Ukraine and Western sanctions against Moscow have disrupted global commerce, pushed up oil prices, threatened food supplies, and increased uncertainty as the world struggles to recover from the pandemic. And the U.S. Justice Department plans to appeal a judge's decision to end national mask mandates. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken warned on Wednesday that in his words, quote, we are going to see far worse, unquote, as Ukraine seeks humanitarian corridors from Mariupol to evacuate citizens in the city. This as Russian forces tighten the news around the defenders hold up in a mammoth steel plant that represents the last known Ukrainian stronghold in Mariupol. Ukrainian officials estimate that about 1,000 civilians are sheltering underneath the Azvostal steel plant in the southeastern port city. Moscow's invasion of Ukraine, the biggest attack on a European state since 1945, has killed or wounded thousands. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. What the world witnessed just a couple of weeks ago when the receding Russian tide from Bucha revealed what was left in its wake in terms of death, destruction, atrocities. We can only anticipate that one, this tide also at some point recedes from Mariupol, we're going to see far worse, if that's possible to imagine. So the conditions there, the situation there as a result of this Russian aggression are truly horrific. And of course, we want to see uh, people who are in harm's way, uh, if they're able to, uh, leave it safely and securely. What gives pause is the fact that there have been um, agreements on humanitarian corridors established before that have um, fallen apart very, very quickly, if not immediately, uh, principally because the security has been violated by Russian forces. And so people uh, leaving, believing that they could do so safely and securely, uh, were fired upon. So this is a very, very uh, difficult uh, decision to make to evaluate not only whether what's been uh, agreed to or something's been agreed to is safe and secure, but whether um, Russia will actually live up to uh, whatever obligations it's, uh, it's undertaken to make sure that people can leave safely and securely. That's U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. The World Food Program says it is scaling up the delivery of food aid into previously inaccessible areas of Ukraine's conflict, but too many areas remain out of reach. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Seven weeks into the Ukrainian conflict, the United Nations has recorded nearly 5,000 civilian casualties, including more than 2,000 killed figures the UN considers to be conservative. 
At the same time, the World Food Program estimates nearly half of the country's population of 44 million is worried about finding enough to eat. Among them, it says, are some 6 million people in desperate need of food and cash assistance. Speaking from Lviv, WFP Emergency Coordinator in Ukraine, Jakob Kern, says his agency has mobilized more than 60,000 metric tons of food, enough for 2 million people for two months. Some aid, he says, is being distributed to vulnerable people in areas previously beyond reach. Places such as Bucha, Irpin, Hostomel, and Borodyanka, where civilians have been subjected to weeks of horrific attacks by invading Russian troops. WFP has reached 1.7 million people in Ukraine through in-kind food assistance to families in encircled and conflict-affected areas. Most people we reached. 1.4 million out of the total 1.7 million are families trapped in encircled and partially encircled areas of the country. But many of the most vulnerable remain out of our reach, behind conflict lines. The most visible example of this is the city of Mariupol, which has been under relentless bombardment from Russia since the war started February 24th. Karen says tens of thousands of civilians trapped in underground bunkers are in dire need of food, water, and other essential supplies. However, he says relief convoys cannot enter the city without permission from all sides. And we need at least 48 hours to safely get food and other items delivered and safely get out again. The city of Mariupol, 100,000 people, would probably need about two or three trucks a day for just food alone, let alone all the other items. So it's not the question of going with 10 trucks once a month. That's not going to, to cut it. He says the humanitarian operation cannot go ahead without the agreement of all parties to the conflict. The WFP official is appealing to all parties to allow unimpeded continuous access to families trapped in Mariupol and other encircled areas of Ukraine. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Turkey has condemned Russia's aggression in Ukraine since the start of the invasion in February. Turkish-U.S. ties have been strained over its close relationship with Russia. Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has unequivocally condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine. At the same time, Turkey has sold, in the face of Moscow's criticism, Turkish-made drones that continue to take a deadly toll on Russian forces. Ankara also closed access to the Black Sea to most Russian warships. All moves praised by Washington. Asla Aydin a senior fellow of the European Council, says Turkey's stance offers an opportunity for a reset in U.S.-Turkish relations. Well, it certainly introduced a level of stability and engagement that wasn't there before the Ukrainian war. The Biden administration's policy seemed to be social distancing somewhat of a cold shouldering of Erdogan based on Turkey's authoritarian lurch and also because there were so many outstanding issues in the bilateral relationship. Senior American diplomats have made several visits to Turkey since the start of the Ukrainian conflict with a framework announced last month to enhance ties. Relations between the NATO allies have been deeply strained, in particular over Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's close relationship with his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin.
Ankara's purchase of Russian S-400 missiles triggered American sanctions, barring Turkey from purchasing warplanes. Ankara is seeking an easing of the sanctions to purchase American F-16 fighter jets, says Aydin Tashbash. Turkish officials that I've spoken to feel you need to give us something to continue the bilateral cooperation. So F-16 meets that purpose. A Turkish uh, Air Force is already run with F-16s. There's plenty. But over the past few years, because of existing sanctions, they've not been able to maintain or find spare parts and replenish their fleet. I think F-16 is a good formula for both sides. Analysts say Ankara is increasingly concerned over its aging jet fighters, given that its neighbour and rival Greece is currently engaged in renewing its defence forces. Erdogan has raised the fighter jet purchase in conversations with US President Joe Biden. But Aaron Stein, Director of Research at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, a research organisation in the US, warns that defence sales face a serious obstacle. In terms of congressional support for arms sales to Turkey, there's still cause for pessimism. Key members on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Menendez and Risch, have both been on the record very recently saying that unless Turkey transfers out the S-400, things like an F-16 sale will be unlikely, if not impossible. Now, things could change. The Biden administration could put considerable pressure on these two senators, but we'll see. Erdogan is ruling out any removal of Russian S-400 missiles. Resolving the impasse is expected to top Turkish Foreign Minister Mevla Çavuşoğlu's agenda when he visits Washington next month for talks with Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Dorian Jones for VOA News, Istanbul. The International Monetary Fund on Tuesday slashed its forecast for global economic growth to 3.6% this year, saying Russia's war in Ukraine threatens a fragile recovery from disruptions caused by the pandemic. White House Bureau Chief Patsy Widaskuara has this report. Russia's war in Ukraine and Western sanctions against Moscow have disrupted global commerce, pushed up oil prices, threatened food supplies, and increased uncertainty as the world struggles to recover from the pandemic, causing the International Monetary Fund to downgrade its global economic outlook. IMF Chief Economist Pierre-Olivier Gorinchat. Even before the war, inflation in many countries had been rising due to supply-demand imbalances and policy support during the pandemic prompting a tightening of monetary policy. The IMF slashed its global growth forecast from 4.4% to 3.6%, the World Bank from 4.1% to 3.2%. Increased energy and commodity prices have led to less output and more inflation. The White House is blaming Moscow. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. We've said this from the beginning, that the invasion of Ukraine by President Putin and Russia is going to have a continued impact on the global economy, whether it is on uh, the oil markets or other areas. Add to that a slowing of the Chinese economy due to frequent lockdowns caused by the Omicron variant of the coronavirus. Diana Fortgoth-Roth, adjunct professor of economics at George Washington University via Skype. First of all, China has imposed a quarantine of one week on goods that come into China. That means that manufacturers that use chips from other places, such as South Korea, are not getting the inputs they need to make the goods in China. Second, there's congestion at the ports because of the lockdown, such as Hong Kong and Shanghai. 
A key goal for central bankers attending the spring meetings of the IMF and World Bank in Washington is to curb inflation without sending the world into recession by gradually increasing interest rates, preferably in a coordinated way. Desmond Lachman, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and former deputy director at IMF's Policy Development and Review Department via Skype. That would prevent inflation from spilling over from one place to the other, but it's a delicate task because we do have equity markets that are very buoyant. We've got housing markets that are very buoyant. So this is not going to be easy to raise interest rates in a way that will bring down inflation without producing a recession. They probably let the inflation get too far ahead of them for them to engineer a soft landing at this stage. Amid Western efforts to isolate Russian President Vladimir Putin, coordination may prove challenging. The U.S. is skipping some of the group of 20 G20 finance ministers' meetings this week to protest Moscow's participation in the group over its actions in Ukraine. Patsy Widakuswara, VOA News, Washington. In other news, rescue teams searched for bodies washed away in South Africa's eastern KwaZulu-Natal province on Wednesday after horrific floods have devastated the area and killed at least 448 people. In Ekutuleni, an informal settlement 17 kilometers away from Durban, officers were seen digging through rubble and mud with sniffer dogs searching for two missing people. Thousands of soldiers have been deployed to the province to assist with rescue missions and transporting aid. Some were seen patrolling an air base in Durban on Wednesday. Torrential rains last week triggered floods and mudslides, leaving thousands homeless, knocking out power and water services and disrupted operations at one of Africa's busiest ports, Durban. The floods among the worst to have affected KwaZulu-Natal province in its recorded history damaged more than 10 billion rand, nearly $675 million of infrastructure. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedwafo in Washington. The U.S. Justice Department says it will appeal a district judge's decision to end the national mask mandate on public transit only if the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says it is still needed. On Monday, a U.S. district judge voided the CDC's requirement covering planes, trains, and other public transit, saying the mask mandate exceeded the authority of U.S. health officials. Dr. Armash Aldaja is an infectious disease physician with the John Hopkins Center for Global Health. He says the public would be better served if the CDC were allowed to function independently from the White House. In the meantime, he tells VOA's Carol Van Dam people need to calculate their own risks when deciding whether to wear a mask before boarding a plane or train. There will never be a time when there is a COVID risk of zero. Every activity that involves social interaction has some level of COVID-19 risk. People have been stunted in their ability to risk calculate because for so long the policy has been abstinence only and not really teaching people how to make risk calculations, how to think about what the risks are in different places. And people have to decide at what, uh, what level of protection they want, at what cost do they want to incur to try and prevent themselves from getting what is eventually going to be an inevitable infection for them. 
And, and to me, I think if you're somebody that's healthy and fully vaccinated, the, the risk of COVID-19 is, is very mild to you. It's a mild illness that's not really going to be much different than other respiratory illnesses that you might get. And I think that calculation applies to the healthy population. The immunocompromised have to be more careful, just like they have to be more careful during flu season or any other, or, or with any other respiratory virus. And they may want to continue to wear masks in certain high-risk conditions or to take extra precautions and, and have a plan for antivirals if they do get sick. But I, but I think increasingly we have to come to a point where we think about off-ramps because COVID-19 is not a virus that's going to be eradicated or eliminated. There will be COVID cases 100 years from now. What about the future of the authority of the CDC now that the judge struck down this ruling? Do you worry at all about the authority of the CDC for future outbreaks or pandemics? Well, the CDC can still, still has the ability to issue recommendations. And just because the government says the government doesn't, CDC doesn't require you by law to wear a mask doesn't mean that their recommendation that you wear a mask is void. I mean, the CDC still recommends masks in certain situations, not with the force of law, but with the recommendation. And I think public health is always better when it's done voluntarily based on recommendations rather than on, on regulations because it increases compliance and it de-intensifies all the politicization that's occurred uh, during this pandemic. I think the CDC... If you look at where their authority is eroded the most, I don't necessarily think it's from the courts. I think what we've seen in two successive administrations is the CDC being held captive by the White House. And we never know what's being said for political purposes with the Trump administration or the Biden administration or what the voice of the CDC or the experts of the CDC, because so much of this pandemic has been run through the White House that the CDC has been completely has been completely neutralized in its ability to speak directly to the public because the CDC director answers to the president, to answers to a politician, answers to a lawyer, does not answer to science anymore. And that's been the case during the Trump administration and it's the case during the Biden administration. The CDC needs to, what would increase the CDC's abilities would be to allow it to function independently of the politicians in Washington. You know, they may com- complain a lot about this judge in Florida, but the White House has been who has derailed the CDC during two successive administrations less so than the courts. That's Dr. Ahmad Shadar, an infectious disease physician with the John Hopkins Center for Global Health and the John Hopkins School of Public Health. He was speaking with my colleague Carol Van Dam. On Sunday, French voters will go to the polls to elect their next president. They will choose between Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen. Macron strongly supports the international rule-based order established after World War II and believes France should play a leading role on the world stage. Marine Le Pen has pledged to take France in a radically different direction. She has advocated closer NATO ties with Russia, tougher immigration controls, and limits on the power of EU regulations in France. VOA senior analyst Mohamed El Shinawi discussed the chances of her victory and impact on U.S.-French relations if she wins with Jean Sesnek, adjunct professor at Georgetown University. Well, uh, it's a really hard thing to say at this point because it's hard to believe that the French would actually elect somebody who is basically pro-Russian today and uh, anti-Europe. But on the other hand, the the economic issues, which the economy in Europe, in France, is quite good really at this point, but people perceive it as not being good. The immigration issues are huge in France today, and she's really pushing the envelope on these issues. And a lot of people may just react against 
the establishment and Macron and sort of centrist policy to show that they are very unhappy with them and are willing to give Marine Le Pen a chance at this point. That would be, of course, a big problem because you can elect Marine Le Pen once and God knows whether you can have be given a chance to elect her twice, <laughs> you know, like happened in Germany in the 30s. Uh, so we don't really know where that goes. So if elected, how could Le Pen impact France policies? Well, very, very simply, I think she could make policies that are really to try to take down the immigration. She would take policies that would take France out of Europe. And even though officially she is no longer against Europe per se, but in practice, all her policies would lead France out of Europe, out of the euro as well out of NATO, and then uh, that would create such upheavals that she may be able to impose the will of, of a central government, which she wants to be much stronger. So how about Le Pen victory's effect on U.S.-French relations and the future of NATO, judging from her campaign's rhetoric? I think she would carry through on the promises. I think we're fooling ourselves if we think that's just rhetoric. I mean, let's face it, uh, five years ago, she took a loan, quote-unquote, a loan from uh, from Vladimir Putin for 9 million euros. And, uh, you know, that has probably never been repaid. She has some very strong views to be closer to Russia, and uh, she's very opposed to the United States. So leaving NATO would be for her a being like de Gaulle. If you remember, de Gaulle left NATO and the, she will push, and she's pushing this now on her shows and TV talk. Even though the Gaullists don't like her, the traditional Gaullists don't like her, the new Gaullists, so to speak, really go for this very strongly. So, you know, it's a bit scary, really. And, you know, she's saying that she wants to take NATO closer to Russia. And you cannot really do that if you have the United States at this point in charge of NATO, really. And because the other members of NATO have been talking a lot about NATO, but done very little in terms of funding NATO, except for the French, actually. But I think Marine Le Pen would push NATO out of, of France, which would destroy NATO at this point. That's U.S. Senior Analyst Mohamed Elshinawi speaking with Jean Zesnick, agent professor at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at vonews.com. Until next time, I am Chinedo in Washington, wishing you a great day. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. When control of Hong Kong was transferred from Britain to the People's Republic of China in 1997, the PRC agreed to govern Hong Kong under the principle of one country, two systems. According to the Sino-British Joint Declaration, for 50 years the city would enjoy a high degree of autonomy, except in foreign and defense affairs, and the laws currently in force in Hong Kong would remain basically unchanged. But as the U.S. State Department's recent Hong Kong Policy Act report shows, the PRC is tightening its vice-like grip on the 
the city as the 25th anniversary of Hong Kong's handover to Beijing approaches. In the words of Secretary of State Antony Blinken, over the past year, the People's Republic of China has continued to dismantle Hong Kong's democratic institutions, placed unprecedented pressure on the judiciary and stifled academic, cultural and press freedoms. Hong Kong's freedoms are diminishing while the PRC tightens its rule. The report notes that over the past year, PRC authorities took actions that eliminated the ability of Hong Kong's pro-democracy opposition to play a meaningful role in governance. Peaceful political expression critical of Beijing with a local administration was criminalized. Sweeping changes to Hong Kong's electoral system blocked the participation of political groups not approved by Beijing and greatly diminished Hong Kong voters' ability to elect representatives of their choice. Among other acts of repression, authorities shut down two of Hong Kong's largest independent media outlets, Apple Daily and Stand News, and forced the closure of the June 4th Museum, which commemorated the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests. Using the 2020 national security law as a pretext, authorities filed charges against more than 160 individuals and organizations. This number includes activists and politicians detained in February 2021 for holding a primary election to elect candidates who would represent the pro-democracy camp in the Legislative Council election. Authorities also arrested and prosecuted activists for speech critical of the central or local governments or their policies, including for comments or posts on social media. Beijing will ultimately force many of the city's best and brightest to flee, tarnishing Hong Kong's reputation and weakening its competitiveness. A fully functioning civil society, rule of law, and individual liberties form the bedrock on which vibrant societies grow, declared Secretary Blinken. We stand with the people of Hong Kong. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 